Okay, let's begin. Certainly. Uh-oh. Really? <laughs> really? Okay. I'll I will I will do a comparison. Okay, I believe yeah. I just don't know what happened there. It's kind of strange. Okay. It could be that it it got Okay. Well, if I mean it initially goes on Anchor and then it then from Anchor it goes to Spotify. So, if it didn't download properly on Anchor or that's what it is, then that's the way it would be. So, I'll double check. I don't know what happened there. I had a student tell me a long time ago, Brian, I go to bed with you every night. Okay, so we've done a lot with the skin. We, you know, we talked about all the things we find in skin, and this skin has uh, especially the uh, epidermis layer. Okay, um, there are five layers. There's five layers to the skin, from basale, which is the deepest, to corneum, which is the most apical. All right. And lucidum, which is D, only exists in thick skin, not in thin skin. So if we think of the sole of your foot with your thicker skin on your heels, you're going to have lucidum, whereas maybe the tissue under your arm near your axilla or the inner thigh, which is a bit thinner, you're, you're not going to have lucidum at the end of the day. So we see it in this diagram. First off, you'll note there's a wavy pattern, which, of course, as we all know at this point now, anytime we start seeing waves, we know we're getting increased surface area for, in this, point, in this particular way, attachments and so forth. We'll also see that between the dermis, which is this pink area, and then this epidermis, we see some transitional areas where we start to see afferent nerves that kind of enter in a little bit. We remember that down here in the bottom is also where we find the melanos melanocytes and the melanosomes. And that uh, which will eventually impregnate uh, uh, pigment into all the cells. And if you remember correctly, we talked about how the deeper surface of the ep of the epidermis is alive. Cells are are uh, dividing and migrating apically. And by the time cells reach the apical surface, they are completely filled with keratin, which is a protein, and they are dead. So. Basali is the deepest. Um, it actually attaches to the underlying dermis within this wavy border. It is basically stem cells, and it is also known as stratum germinativum, which is to germinate is to reproduce and create. So it is a, I won't use that name at all, uh, but you may see it in textbooks. I will be calling it basale. And uh, basically, it's like 10 to 25% of all the cells in this layer are melanocytes. And as you saw in the diagram here, occasionally we do find Merkel cells here, which are the Merkel cell is what gets stimulated initially when there is something sensory going on, and it is the, the stimulation of the cell that stimulates the tactile part of the afferent neuron, afferent meaning running from skin to brain. So it's sending information to the brain, hot, cold, tickle, pressure, whatever it may be. The next layer is spinosum. It is quite a lot of, of layers thick. This is where we find uh, filaments, which will help with the tension and, and the, the, the ability of the skin to get pulled around. They also contain pre-keratin, which again helps with uh, resisting tension. And as we've moved up, so when we saw here in the deeper part here, these are almost cuboidal in a sense in terms of basale. And by the time we get into spinosum, those cells are starting to flatten out. Uh, well, eventually, at the top, they'll actually become squamous, meaning that they'll be completely flat when we get to the top. We also find Lagerhans cells here. Do you remember what a Lagerhans cell is? It is a macrophage. And what do macrophages do? Eat. So macrophages in here help anything that's trying to uh, penetrate through the skin that's of an infectious agent or something that's not great for the body. They may get into the, so far into this tissue, and then the macrophages come along and destroy it by eating it. And the author, or uh, the, the artist, has, has drawn one in here somewhat in the center of, of the spinosum. Um, 
Next is granulosum. Sorry, I don't have it in there, so you may want to write this in the slide in case you haven't got it. So this next part is, uh, is granulosum. And uh, this is the middle part. We have lots of flattened keratinocytes now at this point, three to five layers of it. Um, we're really starting to see the cell itself as a viable cell is starting to disintegrate and break down. It's becoming more and more dead, shall we say. And that's what apoptosis is. You're going to learn that in, in, um, in uh, past class. But apoptosis is basically self-destruction. The cell is actually destroying itself. And as I say here, uh, nuclei and organelles are beginning to degenerate. You start to see more and more of these tonal filaments. Are be they're becoming a bit larger. And then there's the presence of keratohyalin, which is a chemical that takes those tonal filaments and turns them into keratin as well. So you can see that the inside of the cell is becoming more and more keratinized as it reaches towards the apical surface. Uh, within the keratinocytes is laminar gland granules, which are the membrane enclosed, which are membrane enclosed, and they help produce a lipid-rich secretion. Why do we need fats here? Why would we need fats? Well, it does a couple of things. Mostly, though, is a water repellent. It acts as a water repellent in the skin because it's lipid-based. And as I say here, um, the secretion fills in the spaces between the stratum uh, granulosum, stratum lucidum, and stratum corneum, acting as a water repellent sealant. So um, because the cells, as they're working apically, organelles and, and nuclei are falling apart or breaking down, there are no more physiological processes at the top of this granulosum layer. They're, in effect, dead cells. And um, this layer, this granulosum, is the point where we have below it, uh, or, or deeper, we have physiologically active cells, and superior to it, we have physiologically inactive or dead cells. The lecidum is the, the layer that's there in thick skin and not there in thin. It is thin, it's translucent, and it's a few rows of flattened dead keratinocytes with indistinct boundaries. So again, I think if you heal the foot where you have a bit thicker skin, palm of the hand if you're a bit of a, uh, a physical worker where you're you know using shovels or whatever. You, and lecidum is in response to and the thickening is in response to friction. So you see lucidum there. Granulosum is the kind of purpley, dark purple layer here. And then we see the lucidum as being this clear, sort of white in this artist's rendition. And then, of course, the most apical or superficial is the corneum. It's about 20 to 30 cells thick. Uh, it accounts for about three quarters of the thickness of this epidermis, so qu quite a bit of the thickness of it as far as uh, comparison to the others. And uh, basically, it's a plasma membrane and keratin. That's it. And its whole role is it kind of prevents penetration, but it's more about abrasion. So you can you know, rub yourself with a towel or whatever, and you're not going to do damage to it. Within here is also like a lipid that also makes the skin waterproof. And this layer helps protect the body from biological, chemical, and physical assaults. So biological obviously being, you know, Bacteria or viruses, chemical could be a number of very of different things, and physical meaning you know hitting yourself or getting road rash, falling off your bike down the road or whatever it may be. In your hair, when you have dandruff, it is this layer that's actually creating the dandruff. And here's one for you: in your lifetime, you will produce 40 pounds of skin that will be sloughed off. You shed 40 pounds of skin. All I can say is thank God for dust mites because that's this is their main course. Dark skin, otherwise we'd all be walking in each other's skin up over your heads. Okay, so up here, corneum is the, is the is the most apical. I ask questions about the relationship of these layers. Okay, which of the following is the most superficial? Which of the following represents? Uh, where we find uh, dead keratinocytes, which is the following is, uh, you know, responsible for, um, you know, being able to deal with abrasion, that kind of stuff. All right. So, we will continue. Yes. 
Next are uh, what are called appendages. So we've talked about skin, which is what you think of as skin, right? Which is what we look at on anybody when we're staring at them. But there are components or, um, well, appendage is about the best way to put it. That are, and, and then when I'm talking about that, what I'm talking about is hair and nails. Okay, so they are considered part of the integumentary system, um, although they're not quite the same as what we would think of as skin. So the first is hair, right? Our hair is really not a protection per se, nor is it very insulative. It's kind of an evolutionary leftover. We truly believe in evolution, and we, we kind of believe that possibly we came from Primates uh, are gorillas and chimpanzees hairy? Yes. So the idea being that if we have, we have followed that pathway evolutionarily-wise, uh, we, we have retained some hair. The other thing as well is sometimes hair is considered a mating attraction. Um, there are different patterns of hair uh, deposition in females as compared to males. And I talk about this a little bit later, but this more has to do with uh, levels of testosterone. So uh, men are hairier because we have a lot more testosterone than you ladies do. Now, some ladies are hairier than others, and that could mean that they do have a little bit higher level of testosterone in their physiology as compared to other females because there are females who have no hair, and, and mature, sexually mature females that have no hair, others that have lots of hair. So, Now, mind you, in this day and age with this generation, nobody has hair because everybody's desperately trying to get rid of it. Waxing... Waxing, flaxing, electrolysis, laser, laser. Everybody wants to get rid of hair, right? Uh, back in the old days, if you talked to your grandmother, what represented a virile, sexy man was hairy. <laughs> What's that? Sean Connery, yeah. Right, big hairy chest. That was considered a big, sexy man. <laughs> Now, you guys are always, <laughs> that's, why, that's why I get a kick out of those, uh, you know, uh, Brad Pitt played, uh, you know, those like Roman soldiers, you know, and they're all just like shaved, right? Just skin. Well, first, they weren't white, right? And secondly, they weren't hairless. Well, the Romans did. Romans were the ones who actually started the behavior of, of uh, male and female both of shedding their body of as much hair as possible. Uh, it's called sugaring. So, yeah, so, it, is it? They would actually, just like waxing, would put like honey or liquid sugar on you, put a bandage on and then, no? Oh, do you? Awesome. The things we do, the things we do for vanity. I will pause this for a second. So, anyways, that's my story. So, um, generally speaking, hair. Hair can grow almost anywhere in the body. In fact, even even especially with females, we may not think they have hair, but you may have hair all over your body. It's just that it's extremely fine, it's very short, and it's sort of almost everywhere. But there are a number of areas in the body that never have hair, and that is the uh, palms of the hands, soles of the feet, lips, nipples, and some areas of the external genitalia. You generally will never find hair there. Um, but generally, months before birth, the, the fetus actually does start uh, growing hair follicles, and which means that they eventually will become, they'll start, some, some children are born with no hair, some babies are born with lots of hair, right, depending. You can actually have a child that is born with a very large amount of hair on their body, which all falls off after they're born, that they actually are quite, quite covered in it. Um, it's a flexible strand uh, produced by something called a hair follicle, and hair is made of keratin, the same as the skin. The only difference is, in skin, the keratin is much softer. In hair, the keratin is much uh, harder. So therefore, it gives that structure to the skin, or to the hair. 
So we see here, there's two major areas of hair. There is the shaft, which is the part that we see that makes up the hair on your head or your body, and the part that we don't see that lies under your skin, and that is the root. And it is my understanding that when you get lasered, this is where the laser goes. So the laser is penetrating down into this active area of the hair and basically blowing it up. And someone said in class, last class, they'd had laser done before. You actually bleed a little bit. Really? <clears throat> no? Yeah. What's that? I, I, I guess it does to some degree. But, but the one girl said, yeah, there's little, you get little, like a little dot of blood where they... Numbing cream. Oh, does it? Interesting. Hmm. So, let's go to the root. Let's go. Let's start the part that lies under the skin. It's embedded. It can pay. It does penetrate the dermis, and sometimes it can go beyond the dermis into the into the subcutaneous tissues underneath. Right? Because it's the active part. So obviously, because it's the active part of hair, it requires blood supply. It needs. It, there are metabolic requirements that cell, because uh, cell division is coming here. Because we'll learn later, the reason your hair grows longer is because at this active level deep within the hair follicle, we have cellular division occurring, which the hair gets continues to get longer and longer. It consists of three concentric layers: a medulla, a cortex, and a cuticle. So the medulla is the centermost part, cortex surrounds the medulla, and the cuticle surrounds the cortex. So this is what you would think of when this part leaves the skin. This is what you think of as the hair. Within that, we were talking here, we'll be talking about this in a couple of minutes, but we have the internal and external root sheaths that surround the hair follicle deep within the skin. But the three areas of the cuticle, the cortex, and the medulla, you actually will find out that when we get to the shaft of the hair, the part that sticks out, this continues. You still have a medulla, a cortex, and a cuticle in the hair that comes out of your head. So the medulla um, can, in thinning hair, be lacking. Generally, two or three rows of irregular-shaped cells. So we see the medulla uh, right here. Okay, this is the dermal root sheath. So we're we're deep here. We're down, and we haven't got to the part that it, that leaves the skin yet. The cortex is the major part of the shaft. Lots of elongated cells. So the cells in the, uh, in the cortex run parallel to the length of the hair. They're running parallel to the length of the hair, not crosswise. So all the way down from skin outwards. And this cuticle, this, um, which we see here in the diagram, it almost looks like fish scales that, that make it up. And it's a single layer of thin, flat cells that are heavily keratinized. The thing that I find kind of interesting about it is that think of shingles on a roof, right? If anybody here has ever roofed, you always roof backwards. You work from the bottom of the roof to the, to the peak so that you have an overlapping of shingles. And those shingles overlap basically runs from the peak down to the eavesdrop, correct? Hair is the exact opposite. It's shingles like a roof, but those shingles go towards the tip. They go the opposite way. So you see them here. We'll get to split ends in a sec. So this would be the more proximal part, and this would be distal. You'll see they layer over top of each other, working towards the tip of the shaft. Okay, the, to me it seems odd. It seems opposite to me. But the reason it's like that is so the hairs don't get all knotted up and stuck together. So the, the thoughts are that this configuration of cuticle with these cells layered this way prevents the hair from all matting up and getting knotted. Uh, the cuticle provides strength and keeps the layers tightly compacted. And when the cuticle goes bad and breaks apart, that's when you guys get split ends. So that's a microscopic view of a split end. The cuticle is broken down, right? And the if you look here, the cortex, these elongated cells, actually are no longer under the control of the cuticle, and they just start heading everywhere. Does anybody here a hairdresser, by the way? Because sometimes I do these lectures and I get hairdressers and they get and get all excited and start talking about all kinds of stuff that I don't get into. No hairdressers in the house? This is a great picture. This is actually an electron microscope of your head with hair coming out. This is not a drawing. This is not a drawing. This is So when we talk about, if we go back to the skin, 
we go back to the skin lecture there, and we talk about that most apical layer of cells that get sloughed off and deliberately are dealing with friction and, and abuse, right? So, you know, coming off on the towel, this is what it looks like under a microscope. You see it, the naked eye is looking at this nice flat surface, but there are, the cells are dead. They're just kind of lying here waiting for you to wash your hair and all those cells will come off, right? All those cells will come off. You also see quite nicely here, this is the hair shaft. So everything we've just talked about is down under here. So this gives you a nice look at the cuticle as to how this, how these layer up and move out. And it also gives you a really great view of what that apical surface of your epidermis actually really looks like when you get down and look at it from a microscopic point of view. Uh, color, I mean, hair comes in a variety of colors without coloring because you never know what a girl's hair color is anymore because I would say, what, does everybody here color their hair pretty much? you never done it? Okay, because lots of girls color their hair. Um, it's like in the skin. In skin, melanocytes color your skin. Same thing in hair. Melanocytes also color your hair. And I'm reading a book right now called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, the new theories around dinosaurs, right? What's this got to do with anything, right? So, it's an awesome book. It's all the new theories of dinosaurs. So this is, what, this is what will blow your mind. So, feathers. Most dinosaurs had feathers. And not necessarily feathers like you're thinking about with birds, but they were rudimentary feathers just the same. Until eventually, after the Cretaceous period, they actually had feathers like the birds that we see. In fact, some of these dinosaurs actually had, had wings on their feet and their arms. Anyways, in the fossils, in the, <coughs> in the fossil record, they started looking at these feathers under the microscope. Both at pre-Cretaceous too. So we're talking like big dinosaurs. We're talking T-Rex and all those sorts of things. Within these, these feathers, they found these circular empty cell membranes. And they thought they were bacteria. And some guy, Canadian, discovered they were melanosomes. And they were actually melanocytes. They were actually those that cause pigment. And he, did, he somehow figured out the shape of the melanosome determines the color. So we see here yellow, rust, brown, and black. <clears throat> so think of all the colors of hair that we have as humans. Now you take yellow, rust, brown, and black. Each of those melanosomes is a different shape. So he, he extrapolated that information, has looked at dinosaurs and their feathers, and they can now tell what color they were. And we've discovered that, that you've all been, had looked at pictures in high school where dinosaurs almost look like lizards, right? They're gray green, whatever. No, these, these folks had like peacock-like feathers for mating purposes. They were various colors. They had uh, 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 feathers that acted like camouflage in the bush and all sorts of things. So it's, it's really changed everything. <clears throat> yeah, it, to some degree you're correct, yes. So it is, it is melanocytes that produce these, these pigments that result in all the various hairs, colors that we see. And then when we get to hair like mine, which is considerably gray, you guys all don't know this, but I was a ginger. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, eh? Um, that uh, what happens is where these melanosomes would have been, my hair has air pockets. And the way light refracts through those air pockets makes your hair look gray because there's no, um, I, I mean, I, you guys all know this, right? Uh, spectrum color that you see is refraction of light through something. That's what results in all the colors that we see, blue skies, red hair, all that kind of stuff, right? Anyways, I don't refract any light, so my hair looks grayish because I have these air bubbles and I'm, and I'm, not, I'm no longer having any pigment in it. The shaft now, so everything we just talked about up to that point was all under the skin. This is all the working part under the skin. The shaft is the part that we see as being hair. And it is a continuation. Yes? That was. That was. I was just to show you. It shows you the cuticle really nicely. That's why I kind of have it there. Okay. Um, so I said that. Remember, we had the medulla, the cortex, and the cuticle down below the skin. I remember I said that that continues into the shaft. So the hair. That, if you were to pull a hair out of your head and kind of look at it, it actually has three layers of cell: an inter, an, a deep uh, medulla. The next layer out would be the uh, the cortex, and then the cuticle is what you're actually touching. When you, when you actually touch your hair. Now, the follicle extends from the epidermal surface into the dermis. So, 
from here to here is considered the follicle. And it surrounds, this, this follicle surrounds the root of the hair. So the distinction I want you to make is that the hair shaft is the part of the hair that sits outside the skin. The root sits in something under the skin called the follicle. That's the working part of the, of the hair. And at the deep end of the follicle, there's this expansion, and it looks like a bulb. It almost looks like a you know bulb you plant in the ground when you want tulips and that, right? There's this widening at its at its, at its deepest part. And within here, this is where all the action's happening. It is in this bulb that we get all the cellular division and so forth. So within this bulb is also, and you'll see it here in the diagram, this sort of looks like roots of a tree surrounding the bulb. This is known as the hair root plexus. Well, you're pulling part of that out if you get, yeah, you've actually done a bit of damage to it, right? Okay, yeah, especially when you poke your, pull your eyebrows, right? Why is it guys hate I say it hurts and you guys just pull them out like crazy? Don't even think about it. <laughs> so, you'll see right here, right, and this is where I, I could turn out all the lights so you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and if I just, you know, took my hand and just touched the hair on your arms, you would know that something was touching you, yes? Because the movement of the hair um, gets sensed by the plexus, which then sends a message to the brain that says the hair is moving and you recognize it as something's touching a hair in, in that area of your body. I kind of talked about this in class the other day. You've seen this new movement of, um, of blind dinners. So you go to these dining rooms where there's no lights on, it's pitch black, and you sit at a table. It's supposed to heighten your taste senses, right? And I think the waiters wear like uh, night vision glasses, right? Oh, really? So it is this plexus and this ability to sense movement that we say makes us a sensory organ. Um, within, within, this, within this follicle, there are two sheaths. Okay, so I want you to understand that well, we, if we look at the dermis and the epidermis, okay, the, the follicle kind of sits into these two sheaths. We have an internal root sheath here, and we have an external root sheath here. The internal root sheath is formed by the dermis, so the live part of the skin, and the external root sheath is formed by, by the invagination of the epidermis. I know. So, so imagine, imagine what you're doing is, you're, you're, if this represents your skin, the follicles kind of sitting in it. So the skin cells come, collapse around in, so it's actually sitting in skin, if you want to call it that. All right? Um, together, these two layers are called the epithelial root sheath, and that kind of makes sense, right? If we're talking about the epidermis and the dermis, it's all epithelial cells. So we can say that your follicle and your bulb actually sit in an epithelial container made up by the epidermis and the dermis. The next thing that we see is down here, uh, so there's a dense dermis that surrounds the hair follicle and it's called the dermal root sheath here. This dermal root sheath is here. And then at its most inferior surface, this, um, this follicle has a nipple sort of shaped piece here at the very bottom known as the papilla in here. And the papilla contains a knot of capillaries. And um, it would make sense that within, within the matrix, which is this sort of yellow piece right here, there's constant cellular division that's happening that's forcing cells out towards eventually the shaft and your hair would get longer and longer and longer. And quite obviously, if within this matrix we have um, cells dividing, metabolically they require a lot and metabolically they're also going to create byproducts. So we need a capillary bed there to supply these live cells that are dividing with metabolic needs, whatever its needs are, and of course to flush away whatever the byproducts are of the metabolic uh, processes of, of this matrix cells as they're dividing, creating the shaft longer and longer. Does that make sense to everybody? So it's alive. Anybody here ever pulled out a hair and just get a little drop of blood? 
Yeah. Yeah, just a little. Yeah, because you, you've actually damaged the hair. You've actually pulled out this small bit of this blood vessel, and it's kind of leaked out of the uh, the sheath. Maybe that means the hair will never grow there again. Well, if you think about what laser, what the laser is doing, in effect, is actually blowing this up, so it can't produce a proper hair anymore. Because my understanding is, when you get laser treatment. Uh, well, you do get some hair growth, but it's not anywhere near like it was, correct? It's a, if it was black and the thicker hair, it tends to come out much whiter and softer and smaller, right? Yeah. It never did grow back, eh? Yeah. Because it does. It actually, the laser goes down and blows this up. That's how it works. How the laser figures out the pore and shoots it right down that, Dermal sheath and is beyond me because they. My understanding is they just have this thing they just slide it around your, like a pen. I think for eyebrows it's just a pen, isn't it? Like a pen-like thing. Well, electrolysis is the same idea, but it's a little more. And and then just fry the follicle, right? Yeah. Huh. So this matrix that's dividing. Funny how people get excited about hair and stuff, right? This matrix that's dividing is actually stem cells. So they're undifferentiated, and they eventually become hair cells. And matrix cells are responsible for the growth of existing hairs and for the growth of new hairs. And the replacement process occurs in the same follicle. So you, as all, especially the ladies with long hair in here know, um, if you have a partner who's always upset because he's always like me, having to go into the tub and pull out these wads of hair out of the drain because you're like honey it's not it's not draining anymore right and this this thing that looks like it's alive they pull right wow oh yeah my daughter does that Anyway, so that you are losing hair, right? And your hair is being replaced. So a follicle will grow hair for so long, that will fall out, and the follicle will continue to produce hair to replace it normally, right? So you are, you are constantly losing hair. You are constantly replacing hair. So what happens when you go bald? You're constantly losing hair, and you're not replacing it in certain areas. Well, you're, you're, it's not, it's, yeah, because it, supposedly it's sucking everything, all the nutrients are leaving there. Now, males have male pattern balding, which is what, generally? Male pattern balding, what is that? Kind of, either goes, <laughs> that is male pattern balding. One of the reasons, one of the reasons for male pattern balding is cholesterol. So some men because you've got a tiny little capillary bed at that papilla of the hair, it can get all plugged up with cholesterol, and that hair can't grow there anymore. Yeah, seriously, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Where does baldness come from? Correct. It comes from your mom. Yes, not from... Can women get bald? Yes. Can they get male pattern balding? Um, uh, they can. Yeah. Steroid. Well, if, if a female's taking uh, uh, testosterone, yeah, it can cause uh, hair loss. But there are some women who, unfortunately, maybe have maybe have like a higher level of testosterone in their physiology, and they, their hair will thin. They don't generally tend to get the male pattern so much, but their hair will just thin out. You'll see females, elderly females, with very very thin hair. Very very thin hair. Does happen? Does that mean they get it from their father? I don't. Know. Uh, there is a muscle. So, what happens when a dog gets upset and threatens? A dog. What happens to its hair? It sticks up, right? Okay. Ours does the same. This is a le this is an evolutionary leftover. So, believe it or not, when you if you get terrified, right? you will actually get goosebumps. 
so your your hair will deliberately try to make you bigger so you can threaten the 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 threat. Well, anybody here been told what to do if you run into a bear? Get big. You get big. Oh no, I tried that once. I didn't know you could run without your feet on the ground. I've been chased by a black bear. A big one in BC when I was a kid working out there. So we called in and we said like, you know, you got to get you got to get rid of this black bear. And they said, oh, no, just up and down, make noise, the bear will run away. So us idiots are jumping up and down. This thing goes, hmm. And he took off after us. I was in the lead. Honest to God, I don't think my feet touched the ground. Right? Yeah. So what happens is, so the muscle that causes the goosebump or that makes the hair sort of stick out more, that is called an erector pili muscle. And it runs at an oblique angle to the follicle, and when it contracts, it causes the goosebump, and it also makes the hair stand up on end. In fact, when, if you have a look, next time you get the shivers, if you're a bit cold, you will in fact find your hair kind of sticking up as well, right? It does stick up as well. Okay, glands. We have lots of glands in our skin, okay? We have sweat glands, oil glands. So, let's talk about the first. The one first is the sebaceous gland, which is the oil gland. They are connected directly to hair follicles most of the time. They lie in the dermis and open into the follicle. In your lips, glands, penis, labia, menorah, and glands of the eyelids, they secrete directly onto the surface of the skin. So, in most cases in the body, the sebaceous gland secretes oil into the area of the hair, and then the oil leaves the deep part of the skin running along the hair follicle and out onto the shaft to then get out onto the skin. In these particular areas here, the, the, um, the sebaceous gland does not secrete onto a hair follicle. It actually has a pore that opens up right onto the skin of those areas and secretes the oil right onto the skin itself. Whatever that was. Yes. Some some of it is yes. So so uh, acne like uh, uh, adolescent acne. Right, because you're because testosterone is causing you to produce excessive amounts of oil, which plugs the pores and 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 collects dirt, and then that dirt has an inflammatory response, which is inflammation and pus. So you get the pimples. Yeah, like I most I, for girls, you guys, most of you don't get this, but um, or won't get this. Some girls do, but generally speaking, males from say about 14 till about 19 or 20, we shine, right? We're just, just, especially in the T zone, right? So the forehead and center of the face. I had bad acne as a kid. I actually had to go to, I had, I went to a dermatologist. I'd take these big tetracycline pills and and I'd go on her on her torture table and she put me under a, under a big. Um, magnifying glass with this needle and she, you know they because you have to find the right pore and she'd like stick needles in the pore and then squeeze the material out of it and stuff like that oh it was awful but look what i don't have any issues i'm very thankful because i was one of those i'm sure we've all had friends male friends that are just uh their back or their face and they're just scarred terribly and now interesting in asian culture because i used to room with a guy from hong kong they don't have any issues with acne. They, he told me like they can't understand like we're so bent out of shape with acne because they just they just accept it like within the within the Asian culture it's not a big deal. Oh, some do. Some some do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, what is it? Sebaceous glands. The oil is actually called sebum, and it's a mixture of triglycerides, cholesterol, proteins, and salts. It does coat the hair and prevents it from drying out. Hence, ladies and gentlemen, you should actually take the time and have like a three or four day spell where you don't wash your hair. The oil that, that gets produced is actually very healthy for your hair because they say that washing your hair every day actually dries your hair out and it's not healthy for your hair. We are, you are supposed to kind of, you know, I used to go like camping trips and that. It was great to have greasy hairs. It felt so good after you wash. Uh, the sebum also inhibits growth of some bacteria. Next, sudoriferous glands or sweat glands, right? You have three to four million all over your body. 
they release sweat into hair follicles and directly on skin. So they can do both the same, either onto hair follicles or onto skin. There are moon t two main types, ecrine sebaceous pseudoriferous glands and apocrine. We're going to do ecrine first because it's the most common. We find them everywhere in your body except the margins of your lips, nail beds of fingers and toes, glands, penis, glands, clitoris, labia minora, or eardrums. Other than that, you find them everywhere else. You produce about 600 milliliters of sweat per day. Think of, That's a bottle of beer. Actually, a bottle of beer is like 450 mils, right? Isn't it 450 for a bottle of beer? 350? So almost two bottles of beer. A sweat a day you produce. Are you? Yeah. Well, some some are. Yeah, some have it. Are you? Take the sheets off, like. Yeah, but you work out all the time, right? So your metabolic your your metabolic machine is like running high. So your furnace is turned up to like ninety degrees, right? Yeah. 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 So everybody's got different, and that's because your meta your metabolism is just firing. Basically, we find sodium, chloride, urea, uric acid, ammonia, amino acids, glucose, and lactic acid in this sweat that it produces. Okay? So when we talk about um, you know, going into saunas to help get rid of impurities in your body, this is the stuff we're talking about. It's not a major eliminator of waste like the kidney is, but there is some waste that comes out. Like how many people here have... Notice, you know, after a good workout, your 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 gear might smell a bit like ammonia. Anybody ever notice that? Yeah, right. And that's all, that's just ammonia coming out of your sweat naturally. That's what the body does in terms of eliminating that. How many people here have had a workout and their sweat kind of smells a bit like urine? Because urea and uric acid are found in urine. So sometimes, right? And maybe not yourself, but maybe even in the gym and like, dude, like, what is it? Yeah. Like hockey gear? <laughs> so you see here, we've got uh, ecrine here. The next is apocrine. Now, apocrine are not as common in your skin, and they're also influenced by sexual maturity. So... They have larger ducts and larger lumens, so in other words, they're a much larger gland. Generally, we find them in the skin of the axilla, the groin, the areolae, and bearded regions of the face in males. What they excrete is a little bit milky or yellowish. Some components has, it has the same within it as the ecrine with included lipids and proteins, and it is odorless. But... Where does BO come from? It is apocrine secretions that interact with bacteria that results in body odor. So it's not the sweat that causes the odor. It's the interaction of the, 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 the stuff produced by the apocrine gland and bacteria. So the best way to put it is it's the poop of the bacteria that you smell. So the bacteria is eating this material, and then it's excreting the byproducts after metabolism, and that's what you smell as BO. Yes, yes, yes. That's why uh, things like uh, crystals, like salt, crystals, those sorts of things can really be a nice deodorant because it destroys the bacteria. As long as you destroy the bacteria, generally speaking, your sweat never smells, right? Yeah, a little bit milky. Like it's not thick, not thicker, just it's not like the, the ecrine form is almost like water. The apocrine, if you look at it under a microscope, it's a little more milky or yellow in color. Yeah, you don't see it. You don't see it. Uh, I don't know. I never really paid attention. Yeah. Well, actually, though, you know, actually... If you wear if you wear a white shirt, you all think that that pit stain is deodorant, yeah. right? It's yellow. So a lot of times it's actually your excretions that are leaving a pigmentation on the skin on the on the material. Um, 
And the reason why children don't generally tend to smell of adult BO, it's because it's not until sexual maturity or puberty that these glands become active and start secreting its materials. So as a young child, you, these, you don't really have active apocrine glands. It's not until you reach puberty that your apocrine glands actually start producing sweat, this type of sweat. Um, the last gland is uh, ceruminous glands, which is basically a modified sweat gland that produces wax. So when you put your finger in your ear and you pull something out, what's it look like? It's yellow and kind of waxy, right? That's what these glands produce. And you should be using your fingers to clean your ears, not Q-tips, correct? Right? And some physicians say you shouldn't clean them at all. Don't get me started on ear candling. Ear candling is a pile of BS. Only if you have excessive amounts. If you if you have normal production of this stuff, you don't ever have to worry about taking it out. But we tend to think that we have to keep cleaning out, right? Leo, I'll tell you a story about it after on break about about it. So that yellowish waxy material is called. Uh, cerumen, and it provides a sticky, sticky substance to prevent the entrance of foreign bodies and in insects into the air. That's why they were called earwigs, because the British believed that when you were lying in bed at night, the earwig would crawl into your ear. But I do believe in other parts of the world, there are vectors, there are certain insects that try to get in your ear, right? Yeah. 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 Might be a spider. Oh, you should go camp in Victoria, outside Vancouver. Victoria has these unshelled um, snails, great big mucusy, thick, whatever. Because I've gone, I've gone camping in Victoria, and they crawl into your sleeping bag to get warm. You find these big, thick snails in there. Okay, one more thing to get through, then we can have a break. Nails. Nails are keratin, right? So skin's made of keratin, hair's made of keratin, nails are made of keratin. It's just the nails, they're very tightly packed, and they're hard, dead ep epidermal cells. It is a clear, solid covering over the dorsal surface of the distal portion of the digits. And basically, there's three parts to a nail, a nail body, a free edge, and a nail root. Obviously, the nail body is what you look at when you look at your nails. The free edge is what we clip when it gets long, and the nail root is found back underneath the scale, under the skin. Yep, same thing. It's just a harder keratin and pack tight. Because because it's because the keratin is slightly different and the configuration of the relationship of the cells is different in skin than it is in nails. Well, you you all grow skin over your nails. What do you call it? Cuticle. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, well, well, I'm going to get to that in a second, okay? So, we see it here, these three parts. The crescent shape, this area is called the lanula, so that little half moon in there. And the reason it's white is only because this is the area where cells get produced to create nails, and it's thicker. So, um, it, it looks a bit whiter. And then um, the, the very end where you, where you clip, it's whitish colored because it has no... Uh, um, blood supply underneath it. So the reason your nails look pink, think of your nail as a window into interstitial tissue. Right? That's why your nails are pink. So when we, some of the things, so for example, when I worked in cardiorespiratory, we would look at someone who maybe had some respiratory issues, and the first thing we'll look at is their nails. If they're blue, we're in big trouble. So if someone is anoxic, in other words, they're not, they're not perfusing oxygen well enough, uh, we'll look at their nails and their, and their lips. And they actually, the nail beds will actually turn blue 
because there's not very much oxygenated blood under that nail. And again, think of that nail as a window down into deep tissue. It's actually a window. Well, there's all kinds of diseases of, of um, uh, lines, particular lines in your nails, shape of your nails. We'll get to that in a second. So basically, what, is, what they grow about a millimeter per week. Now, I think they grow faster in massage therapists, but I'm not sure if it really does or just the fact that because we have to be aware of our nails, we're clipping them more often. But I've often felt that the lotions we use tend to promote nail growth because I find my nails grow like mad when I'm actually doing lots of active massaging. It's like, holy crap, I'm having to clip my nails again. What's that? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. So obviously they protect and provide support to the end of the fingers because of all the work that our digits do. And also it helps in certain types of grafts and allows us to scratch and groom. They're not really protection. In some animals, obviously, they've developed into claws, which helps protect. So nails are important because nails can be a window into the health of your patient. And there are lots of conditions that affect nails. Okay, so the top left-hand side can represent a condition called emphysema or COPD. It's not really common, but it can happen. So the disease can affect the fingers. I can't remember what the cause is of turned up nails. Do you remember at all? But there is something that can cause it. And last but not least, which you will likely find in long-term care facilities, is nail fungus. So, are you all right? <laughs> so, do you want to come up and touch the screen? <laughs> this is nothing more than a fungus. You can't. It's almost impossible. Uh, because... It's just it's just so deeply embedded in the nail they just can't, you just can't get rid of it, yeah, yeah, and it's also extremely contagious it's extremely contagious, right so it, it tends to run through long term care facilities, right actually, one of my patients he picked it up in China on a trip, and I'm showing you a couple of examples where the nails are relatively intact. His nails are similar to this, but they only grow this far, so the whole tip of his toe. Has 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 no nail at all, okay? Yes. Thank you. Anemia. Okay, which is lack of iron. Okay. So you are likely going to come across this in long-term care facilities. I tend to see it in people with diabetes. You tend to see it in the elderly, anyways, because of poor circulation and they're so close to each other within the facility, and it is contagious, it can happen. If you come across this and you're treating elderly, which you will be doing in semester five, wear gloves if you're having to do a foot massage. But it, it is somewhat contagious. It's a fungus. Oh, I got lots of pictures today, man. You wait to see some of the pictures I have today. We're talking infections here soon. Okay, take a break. Yeah, go for a coffee or a bun. <laughs>